just before the Lord returns, some of you will get that. (laughs) Hard to go from free church to liturgical church in one generation. We are in a series, at least I've been doing a series, on the maintaining of a biblical worldview and mindset in an increasingly post-Christian and post-modern America. And uh, I've explained the two basic terms of worldview and mindset. A worldview is that perspective, that, that framework from which you interpret all things. And it comes to you through your language, it comes to you through your experience, it comes to you through your culture. So that whatever culture, language, and people, and environment that you grew up in, those things were said. It's natural to you as it would be uh, if you had been picked up and put in another context. You would know that context well, and this one would feel foreign to you. And if any of you have ever traveled the world, you know how quickly you realize that you're not in Kansas anymore when you're in another another context. The mindset is the poke focus and purpose and direction of our life. So the worldview is shared among a community of people or a culture, and the mindset is an individual choice as to within that context where you're headed and what you're going to do. So I talked about that. I also suggested, actually I didn't suggest it, but James suggested that a person can be caught between two mindsets. And I think you can be caught between two worldviews. Uh, the mindset uh, will have you be what I call a little bit country and a little bit rock and roll, and you'll be confused and unstable in all your ways. And a person who tries to merge two mindsets, uh, who says, I want to keep as much of the world as I can uh, and still go to heaven, that person's going to be unstable in, their, in, their, uh, in all their ways. Uh, welcome uh, to American Christianity, right? I want my salvation but I don't want to miss anything in this life, right? That kind of focus. So uh, I suggested uh, that the worldview must be taught, caught, and reinforced in community, in our households, and in our congregation, but that the mindset is the individual responsibility that you must do for yourself and your children must also do for themselves. Then I talked about uh, four different periods of worldview. The ancient world, and then the, um, the pre-modern world, and then the modern world, and now the post-modern world. And the last time we talked, we looked at the ancient worldviews. I, said, I talked about the two doors. Uh, the Judeo-Christian on one side, and the Greco-Roman on the other side. These cultures lived somewhat isolated from each other uh, for a very long time. And then, ultimately, through Alexander the Great and then the Caesars, the Greco-Roman world overtook the area of the promised land and the, the Jewish people, and there was an interaction between those two worldviews that were quite different, so that old philosophers would have said, what, what does Athens and Jerusalem have in common? What does Rome and Jerusalem have in common? Those are different worlds. Paul talks about that. He says, the Jews seek a sign, the Greeks seek wisdom. They have different perspectives uh, in this kind of context. So we looked at those and I, I talked about different aspects that should have been familiar to you from both of them because we are actually a mixture of the two of them. But I want to remind you 
of one of the aspects that I talked about because this is the one that is bothering me the most in terms of the contemporary situation. The Greco-Roman world believed that the gods were doing things behind the scenes. So that whatever happened in the circumstances and whatever happened in our feelings was something that we needed to learn what the gods wanted. In other words, you understood the will of God by your feelings and your circumstances. The Judeo-Christian worldview was very different. You never looked at the circumstances and said, what is God trying to say? In fact, God, even when he was going to use circumstances to judge people, would send a prophet first to tell them the judgment's coming. So they didn't have to look at a natural disaster and say, "Uh uh-oh, God must be mad at us. That's Greco-Roman. If God's going to judge you, he'd send a prophet. The prophet would say, if you don't turn, this is going to happen. And then if they didn't turn, it happened. And if they turned, it didn't happen. Very different worldviews. When they're merged now in our crazy American mindset, we're trying to figure out what God wants by our circumstances and by our feelings. And that's not biblical. It's Christian, but it's not biblical. And it is a, it is a leftover of the merging of the Greco-Roman and the Judeo-Christian world. So I want you to keep that in mind as we go forward because what I want to do today is talk about how these two worldviews merge together into what is called the pre-modern worldview or the traditional worldview. Now this worldview that I'm going to talk about is a worldview that developed around the second well, the 3rd to the 5th centuries of, uh, after the Lord uh, and lasted until about the 1200s, 1300s, right before we began to move into the uh, modern area, era, which I'm going to talk about uh, in another time. So I want to I explain to you how this merger took place and the impact of the merger and the dynamics of the merger. And then we're going to look at some impacts of that at some biblical texts and how they get misinterpreted because of this blurring of the, of the worldviews. But this first part's going to feel like you're in class. You may want to take notes. Okay? There won't be an exam, although life is the exam, so you might want to pay attention. Right? So, uh, the Roman Empire was, was influenced by Jews and Judaism at two levels. First, the Jews in the land of Israel were under Roman control, and the situation was one of Israel being a constant problem to the, to the Romans. The, the, the Jews were a pain in the neck. Actually, they had a lower opinion of them uh, in, 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 to, the, to the Romans because they were just constantly a problem. They had their own God. They had their own Torah. They had their own temple. They had their own way of doing things. And they absolutely refused to get with the program of the greater Roman peace and and common good. It had been a problem for the Greeks before them. And now the Romans had inherited this. And it was a problem. So rebellion and religious movements among the Jews was a great problem for for Rome. So finally the empire decided to make Judaism what they called a religion that was licit. You know the term illicit means not allowed. Licit means allowed. It was an acceptable religion. Jews could 
practice their crazy superstition. They could worship at their temple. They could eat their crazy kosher laws. They could do whatever their God, their desert God said for them to do. That was okay. As long as they stopped the rebellion and stopped causing trouble. And so there was a there was an accommodation that Rome made for Jews to be able to practice their religion. And that's why in the New Testament, you see the Herod and Pilate and the Sanhedrin kind of vying for uh, who's in charge of this problem. Because there was kind of a, a separate little world, this separate little Jewish world amongst the Roman world. And if it was about their stuff, they said, you guys just handle it. And if it was a bigger issue, then bring it to us. Okay, that's, that's how that worked. Now, what ultimately happened was the Jews then were not required to sacrifice to the gods, nor were they required to burn incense to the emperor who thought of himself as a god. And it was in that context that our faith in in Jesus and ultimately Christianity developed uh, as a sect of that Judaism. That's the first way in which Judaism affected Rome. It became a licit religion within the Roman Empire, both in Jerusalem and Judea and all that area, but also in the diaspora. The second thing was, because of paganism being somewhat meaningless to a lot of people in that time because of the philosophers, uh, Judaism provided a moral code and a lifestyle that was different than the stuff that was going on in pagan Rome. So that By the time of uh, Jesus, almost 10% of Roman citizens had either converted to Judaism, that is, they were going to the synagogues, they were either converts or they were what was called God-fearers. God-fearers were people who weren't fully converted, but adapted a great deal of their lifestyle and their religious life to Judaism. Uh, particularly in the diaspora, but also in the context of what uh, you and I see in the New Testament. I'd like you to see a a picture of that. So turn with me to Acts chapter 10. We're going to look at a passage that you're very familiar with, but you'll see the framework of this in what I'm talking about. Judaism was... uh, The Jews were not so much like, but their religion was, was acceptable to some of the Roman citizens as an alternative to the paganism of Rome. So in chapter 10 of Acts, the scripture says, Now there was a man in uh, Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort or the Italian band. So this is an Italian guy, uh, and he is living in Caesarea, which is on the coast of the the Holy Land. If you've ever been there, you've seen that great amphitheater there, Caesarea and, and, and those kinds of things. And he was a devout man and one who feared God. See that term? Feared God. This is what a God-fearer is. You'll see this all through the New Testament. These Gentiles who haven't converted to Judaism, but they are they would pray at the temple, they would go to the synagogues, they would they would participate to some extent in the life of Israel because they believed that the God of Israel and the Israel of God was the correct way uh, out of their Babel backgrounds. He was a devout man and feared God with all his household and he gave many alms to the Jewish people 
and he prayed to God continually. And about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw a vision, an angel of God, who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. Now what? You need to catch this. Why is this happening at the ninth hour of the day? The ninth hour of the day is three in the afternoon. Three in the afternoon at the temple, both nine in the morning and three in the afternoon, the priest would come into the temple uh, that followed the pattern of the tabernacle like we have here. He would take some incense from the uh, table of showbread. He would trim the lamps of the menorah and he would come to the altar table and he would burn incense while the people were doing their prayers facing Jerusalem. Nine in the morning, the morning sacrifice. Three in the afternoon, the evening sacrifice. So a sacrifice is going on out at the big altar. The the tongs and the fire from that altar would be brought and used as the fire for this. And so the connection was made of both God's sacrificial system and the prayer system that was going on. The people would turn and pray. So Cornelius is praying at three in the afternoon just like the Jews did. This is why many years ago I began a practice of my prayers at 9 a.m. and at 3 p.m. in the the context of turning towards uh, Jerusalem and doing those prayers. That was very common in the early church uh, and we see this even preceding the early church among Gentiles here with Cornelius. So an angel comes, you know the story, the angel tells him to go to Simon the Tanner's house in Jaffa and get a guy named Peter. Peter's up on the roof. Uh, and he's waiting for food, and he sees a vision of a screen let down, uh, and on it are unclean animals, and and God says, kill Peter uh, and eat. And Peter says, I've never eaten those things. I'm an observant Jew, right? Three times he has this, and he's trying to figure out the, the, the notion. And what happens is, at the time that he does that, there is a knock at the door. So that's at verse 19. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. Uh, For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in for their lodging. The next day they're going to go to Cornelius' house. Peter is going to speak to the house of Cornelius with these God-fearers. While he speaks, the Holy Spirit's going to fall on them and a small little Gentile Pentecost is going to take place. Now I know people say, the church was born at Pentecost. No, that was the Jewish people receiving the Spirit, as promised. The Gentiles received the Spirit at Cornelius' house in Jaffa, or Caesarea. And that's where this took place. Now, the tourist guides don't tell you that because they wait till they go to the upper room and they said, this is where it is, because we've completely replaced the Jews in all of our interpretation of things, right? Uh, but the idea is, that's what's going on, these God-fearers. Now, So what we have is, we have Judaism influencing the Roman Empire by the fact that their religion is now acceptable and a lot of the people are practicing Judaism within the Roman Empire and that's going to uh, open the doors for what will ultimately be called Christianity as a sect of Judaism. 
So let me talk about Christianity briefly. It began as a sect of Judaism which included Jews and God-fearers that we talked about. But eventually it began to include pagan Greeks and Romans who turned to God from idolatry and affiliated themselves with this Jewish movement. These people were first called Christians in Antioch in the diaspora. And, and, and the Gentiles then began to become a large portion of those who followed Yeshua or Jesus as the Messiah. These Gentiles were first thought of by, by Rome as Jewish converts. They couldn't tell the difference between a, a Gentile who was doing the Jewish religion and the others. Why? Because primarily the difference would have been circumcision, and that wasn't obvious, right? Uh, and secondly, the, the, the God-fearers were already largely Torah observant, particularly those four things that were required in the book of Acts chapter 15. They did not eat blood. They did not uh, have anything to do with anything attached to an idol. They did not eat food that was strangled or not killed for food ritually correct. And they didn't uh, engage in sexual behaviors that violated the book of Leviticus where it says these are the rules for Jews and for the Gentile who dwells with you. Right? Chapter 18. So, you shall be kadosh for I am kadosh. You shall be holy for I am holy. So what happened then is ultimately then the Christians began to separate themselves from the Jews over this issue of Yeshua as the Messiah. And in that context, what we begin to get is a uh, persecution of the Christians uh, under Nero that was unbelievable. Christians were put on crosses and used as lights uh, for uh, the way they were, they were fed to the lions. All kinds of things were happened. Now what ultimately happened then, uh, as a result of a guy named Constantine, I'm not going to talk about him now, he's a problematic person uh, in church history. But ultimately, Christianity went from a persecuted sect to a tolerated sect to the preferred religion of the Roman Empire. So the emergence of Christianity in the Roman Empire set a stage for the mixing of the Greco-Roman and Judeo-Christian worldviews into a new worldview. And this was done largely by the church fathers. Now the church fathers were a group of men some of them were Greek-speaking. Some of them were Latin-speaking. So they were Greco-Romans. And they had a Greco-Roman mindset. And they looked at the biblical text from a Greco-Roman mindset perspective. So they would look at the Hebrew Scriptures, which was problematic for them. They would look at the New Testament, which they could read well because it was in Greek. And then what they began to do was use a translation of the Torah, which was called the Septuagint. And it was easy for them eventually to just kind of ignore the Hebrew Scriptures, use the Septuagint, so that now everything they had, the Scriptures they had, were in Greek. And then by the year 400, Jerome uh, had translated that entire Greek Scriptures into Latin, so that the Eastern Church could use the scriptures in Greek, 
the Western church could use the scriptures in Latin, and now the Greco-Roman worldview, reading the Jewish scriptures in Greek, could ignore the Hebrew and the worldview and the mindset that is in there, and they could adapt it to their own. But they didn't. It still felt funny. So, what began to happen was a misunderstanding of Paul began to be exaggerated. I'd like you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 18. The, Peter is writing here and he says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, he's talking about the new heaven and the new earth that's coming, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. So there's a process. You're new, you Gentiles who have come to faith, you should, uh, you should look for the new heaven and new earth. And you should be, when he comes, you should be found in peace. You should be found spotless. Spotless means holy. And you should be blameless. That means obedient to the commandments. Okay? And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. In other words, don't get concerned that the Lord isn't coming back. The reason the Lord is waiting is so that repentance can happen and those who are called by His name will come to Him. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, I'm in verse 15, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort. Well, who are the untaught? The untaught are the people who don't have the background in the Hebraic mindset and the scriptures. Who are the unstable? The unstable are those who have a, a dual mindset. They're Greco-Roman looking at Judeo-Christian texts and they're going to be unstable in their interpretation. So he says, uh, uh, they will rest the scriptures, uh, they will distort the scriptures uh, as they do the rest of the scriptures. Not only Paul's writings, but once they got Paul wrong, they get the whole rest of the scriptures wrong. And when they get all the rest of the scriptures wrong, they bring about their own destruction. They're ever learning, Paul says, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. What's missing is the Hebraic mindset. What's missing is the foundation of the Torah and the Hebraic mindset that is essential for understanding all of the scriptures. And it begins to be lost in the church fathers, and particularly with one who I want you to be aware of. He is a good guy and a problem. I'm going to say the same thing about Martin Luther later when I talk about the Reformation. A good guy and a problem. His name is Augustine or Augustine, depending on how you pronounce his name. He was the Bishop of Hippo which is on the African side of the Mediterranean, the lower portion of the Mediterranean, the African side. 
uh, and he was a bishop right about the time that Jerome finished the Latin writings of the scriptures. And he was one of the Latin African church fathers. He wrote his confessions, uh, and that is a major uh, uh, document in Christian history. He was a philosopher, and he saw in Plato a parallel to biblical thought. You know that in the book of Hebrews, it says, and, and in the Torah, it says that the tabernacle has to be made according to the pattern that is in heaven. God said, make it exactly like the pattern is in heaven. And, and Augustine, who is Greco-Roman and steeped in the philosophers of the Greeks, thought of Plato's forms. Now, I don't know how much you know about the forms of Plato, but Plato believed that whatever we see here is just an image of what is actually in the heavens. And so Augustine said, ha, it's the same thing. And he called Plato a proto-Christian. And then he looked at uh, Plato and Socrates and Aristotle's virtues, and he saw in the virtues a list that looked an awful lot like the list in Galatians of the fruit of the Spirit. And so what he did was he took Plato and Moses and put them together. He put Plato and Paul together because he thought they were talking about the same thing. We don't need a Hebraic mindset. We can use the philosophers of Greece and the Roman notions of understanding and we can interpret it just fine in our own Greek and Latin languages. And he established a worldview that would last up until the 12 and 1300s called the traditional worldview or what we're calling the pre-modern worldview. Now, built into these church fathers was something very important. They were... Hostile to Jews. The Jews had rejected the Messiah. And the Jews had kicked believing Jews and Gentiles out of the synagogues. Particularly in the diaspora around Paul. And therefore they were the enemies. And even Paul calls them enemies. He says for the sake of the gospel they are enemies but for the sake of the promises of God, they are beloved for the fathers. But they left that part out. And what they began to do was reinterpret the scriptures with an anti-Semitic and replacement mindset. And I want to show you how that works. I'm going to do it very carefully. The people of God historically were who? Israel and the Jews. Now the people of God were Christians who were primarily Greeks and Romans. Okay? The language of God historically was what? Hebrew. Now the language of God was Greek and Latin. Okay? The culture of God that was Torah-based was the old one. Now it is gospel-based, anti-Torah, in the context of Christianity. The geographic environment was the promised land, awaiting the time when God would restore Israel and the kingdom. Now, the, the holy areas were Antioch, 
Constantinople, and Rome. You see, the entire worldview perspectives are now substituted with new ones. New ones that have some compatibility, but are not the same. And Hebrew drops off the map and will not return until the reformers pick up Hebrew again and try to bring that back into biblical translation and interpretation. So, I want to show you what this did. Let me start with the dynamics of the merge. We're going to look at a couple of passages uh, in that context. So, stay with me. It, It won't be as painful as it feels. The dynamics of the merge are important. If I take... If I take um, vanilla ice cream and I take chocolate ice cream and I put them in a blender, equal parts, I'll get a merge, right? That's not what happened. It wasn't Judeo-Christianity and Greco-Roman were equally merged in there. What happened was the Greco-Roman framework was in place and the Judeo-Christian scriptures were brought in with that influence. But the worldview was not merged directly. And so it is, it's important to understand as we talk about what's happening to America now, if, if I have my basic core, if my basic core is Greco-Roman and I put on a facade of Judeo-Christianity, the time can come when I can peel that back off. And that is what we're going to see happen. And America is finally letting go of that Judeo-Christian garment that it has worn for a long time so that its Greco-Roman core, earlier pagan, this time not pagan, this time secular, they're not the same, I'll talk about that later, has remerged this into a different context. Are you with me? Okay. So, I know it doesn't feel like church. It feels like a classroom. But you need to understand this. It will change the way you read the scriptures. Now, I think of it, and you, and you say, how do I explain this to my children? All right. Well, when your children are old enough to see Jurassic Park, you show them Jurassic Park. You, if you saw the movie, you know that what happened, a guy wanted to bring the dinosaurs back. And what he did was, he took the dinosaur DNA... And he spliced it with reptilian DNA. In other words, he took something that was foreign to it and introduced it in there. And what he got was really bad dinosaurs that went on for three movies and the third one was the worst. Okay? They should have stopped it too, right? But that's what happened. So, so what happened with this thing is the Greco-Roman basic Dino DNA was infused with Judeo-Christian stuff which wasn't as compatible as Augustine thought and created a Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian Western civilization which has been torn back and forth between these two value systems ever since. Now, you'll see the process of that on the back of the bulletin, I just gave you that. We can talk about that at Q&A if you want. So what did that do? Well, the implications of that is that now when the scriptures are read, they are read as if they belong to us. 
If you had a sister, I'm, let, I'm trying to do, do I do this male or female? Let me do this female. You're female and you have a sister. Okay? And your sister's boyfriend writes her a letter and tells her how much he loves her, reminds her of the things that he had done before uh, with her and how important that was to her, can't wait until they are together again. And he not only enjoyed that, but he enjoyed meeting her sister and says, give your sister my love. And so you give to your sister the letter And she reads that and begins to read it as if the whole letter was to her. How would you feel? At this part when he's talking about, he's talking about him and me. He's not talking about you. He gave you his love. You're included, but you don't replace me. That's what the church did to the love letter from God to Israel. We started reading it as if every verse applies uniquely to me, not to Israel first, and then by extension to me. And when you read the scriptures that way, you are not reading the scriptures. You are reading a different document. And that's part of our problem in in the church, and that's been part of our problem. That's also our problem in translating the scriptures uh, when we keep trying to make it more and more relevant to the contemporary scene instead of make it an authentically explain what was happening there and then we study it to to apply it in this context. So, let me give you some examples. I'm going to just give you two. There are two that some of you already know if you took my classes at CBU. The first one is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. One of the reasons that uh, Christians prefer the epistles to the Gospels, we love the Gospels for evangelism, but we don't like the Gospels for teaching because Jesus is so Jewish and he's so Torah-based and Paul seems to not be. And when you get Paul wrong, then you go back and misinterpret Jesus. So in in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, uh, after saying that he is not going to change one jot or one tittle from the Torah. And who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to Jews on the Mount of the Beatitudes. He's not talking to Gentiles. And he's certainly not talking to Christians. He's talking to Torah-observant Jews in their own context. And he says to them, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Now he's saying this in traditional rabbinic framework. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery in in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into Gehenna. Okay? Now, I want you to come back with me to the mount of this sermon and hear it from the perspective of the Jews of Jesus' day. You have heard it said... You shall not commit 
Adultery. What is adultery? Adultery is to marry someone else's wife. You do not marry someone else's wife. A man who divorces her wife, Jesus said, causes her to commit adultery. Why? Because she has to marry another. And the man who marries her commits adultery. We don't think that way. We think adultery is extramarital sex. That's not what they're thinking. They're thinking of David. David, who took the woman, had her husband killed, and then married the grieving widow. What a righteous guy. And then Nathan came, not Lewis. Nathan came and said, let me tell you about a man who had a little sheep. And he loved that sheep, and it was wonderful. And this other guy who had a bunch of sheep took that sheep and slaughtered it for himself. And David said, as the Lord lives, that man will die. And Nathan said, you are the man. That's what they're thinking. They're steeped in Torah. They know exactly what this is. Therefore, if you look at a woman, the word woman there is a married woman, to desire her to be your wife. You have already started the process of stealing that man's wife from him to be your wife. What did David start with? He looked down and saw Bathsheba. He looked at another man's wife and lusted after her. But the church fathers didn't have that. So what the church fathers did is they said, Hmm, if a man looks at a woman, now remember in the time of Jesus, women are pretty much covered and they're isolated in most social gatherings. So the only woman you're going to see uncovered is your neighbor's wife. That's what he's talking about. The church fathers said, if you look at any woman and you have sexual thoughts, you have committed fornication or adultery in your heart and now you're a sinner. As if you actually did it. Now let me tell you something, ladies. Guys, you already know this even if you don't admit it. It is virtually impossible for a man to look at a woman and not have sexual thoughts. But now the church fathers have decided that's sin. And so what they do is they follow the next verses. So if your right hand, right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it out and throw it. So the early church fathers, many of them castrated themselves so they wouldn't have sexual thoughts looking at women. So much so that at the first council of Nicaea, one of the first rules they made was, if you castrate yourself, you can't be a bishop because it was becoming that widespread. Because these Greco-Romans take everything very literal because they didn't have the biblical background to know what, what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, nip it in the bud. You start with anger, you're going to end with murder. You start with lusting after a man's wife, you're going to destroy his marriage and take his wife. Stop it. Your righteousness must be greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees because they only care about the external thing and you have to care about the heart. But it was missed and created thought sin and all kinds of bizarre things in Christianity because it didn't have a Hebraic mindset. It had a Greco-Roman mindset. Let me give you another example. Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10, the first 10 uh, verses, Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, he's talking about his fellow Jews, is for their salvation. 
Because I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but it is not according to knowledge. And not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For the Messiah is the goal of the, of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness in terms of his blessing and his cursing. But the righteousness based on faith speaks this way. And now he's quoting the Torah. Do not say in your heart, this is from Deuteronomy, who will ascend into heaven, and he, Paul says, that is, bring the Messiah down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does he say? The word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart, that is, the word of faith which we are preaching. Now, Paul is quoting Deuteronomy, and he's going back when the Jews were at Horeb, about to go into the promised land. And Moses says, the word that I'm preaching you is not difficult. You don't have to reach up to heaven. You don't have to go down to the abyss. Uh, it is right here you. Trust God. He's brought you this way. He will not abandon you. Give, put your faith in God who will bring about salvation, Yeshua, and, you, and all will go well with you. Then obey my commandments. Not understanding the righteousness of faith that leads to salvation, they took the righteousness of obedience that leads to blessing and tried to substitute it. And Paul says that can't happen. So that's what he's talking about. But the, the church fathers said, oh, the Messiah is the end of the law. Don't need that anymore. That word should never be translated end. The word is telos. It means purpose or goal. Okay? The end of engagement. What is the purpose of engagement? Marriage, right? So if I said the end of the relationship is marriage, you wouldn't say. You would say, well, I guess our relationship's over. We're married. It's the goal of the door to get you in there. The law was supposed to get, God, we need your mercy. Look at our sins. We can't cover this. Send the Messiah. Send the Savior. And then, God, give us the grace and the ability to grow in grace and in knowledge and in obedience to you. Because we can't do it in this flesh. And that's what he says in verse chapter 8. Chapter 8, he says, There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, the church fathers said, this is the law of sin and death. But the Jews would have never believed that. Why? Because when God gave them this law through Moses, he said to them, here are my commandments. I set before you life and death. You will choose life. Where is life? Life is in this. But life is dead if it isn't combined with the Spirit. Combined with the Spirit. To have the Spirit take you away from the Torah is false. To have the Torah mean you don't need the Spirit is stupid. But the church fathers misinterpreted it and it's been preached down through the centuries. 
Thank God we're saved by grace. And we don't have to be biblical scholars to go to heaven. But we sure have confused ourselves. And we are caught in a double mind in this process. The law of sin and death, Paul says, if you read the chapter, is sin in your flesh. And Christ came, what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. God did in sending His Son to condemn sin in the flesh, not the law. So that we now can follow the Lord and grow in our obedience to His commandments by the Spirit. So if you set your mind on the Spirit, you will live. But if you set your mind on the flesh, you will die. Now think about that. How do I know God's will? I feel it. It's in my circumstances. That's the flesh. Thus saith the Lord, that's the will of God. And you can see how the merging of the mindset has done damage to the word of God so that we hear it with deaf ears. And believe me, I was steeped in this. And a lot of good, sincere people are steeped in it. But it's not true. No wonder we're a mess. So if you go down in verse 8, chapter 8, verse uh, 5, he says, Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. What are the things of the flesh? What I desire, how am I comfortable, am I going to be famous, am I going to be successful? All the things of the world, right? Which we're not supposed to love. But those who are according to the Spirit, they think of the things of the Spirit. Well, what's of the Spirit? Where did this come from? The Spirit of God. So, the key to this is, if you follow the Spirit, you will learn the Scriptures, study the Scriptures, memorize the Scriptures, do the Scriptures, and you'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you understand what is the will of God, that which is good, perfect, and acceptable. This is why it was said of Jews in Jesus' time by uh, certain philosophers, those crazy Jewish kids, by the time they're about 10 years old, know the entire Scriptures by heart. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. What do we do? Does the Bible say anything about it? I don't know. Let's look. Get a concordance. Now think about traveling down the road, having no idea where you are. And they give you a map and they they tell you the directions and you say, I'm not going to study it now. I'm going to just take it with me and if I need it, I'll use it. And then when you use it, you're confused. Welcome to the way we use the Bible. The Bible is here for us to teach it, to know it, to learn it, to memorize it, and teach it to our children. These words that I give you, you shall talk of when you rise up, when you sit down. You'll write them on the doorposts of your house. They will be everywhere. You will speak the word of Christ to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're supposed to be saturated with the word of God so that when we look at the world, we see it through God's eyes. We hear it through God's ears. We touch it through God's hands. We smell it through God's nostrils. We taste it through God's mouth. That Hebraic, biblical worldview that's missing.
So Augustine pulled these things together. It had impact on our lives. And then to make matters worse, two other things happened. with this I'm going to close. Over a period of time, after Augustine did this, instead of having various bishops in various places, the church began to organize itself and get everybody on the same page. And Trevor, if you don't agree with us, you're out of here. Bob, if you don't agree with us, you're out of here. And it's centralized, and then the clergy became corrupt. And the people lost the ability to read. Judaism and Christianity always required for your, uh, for your bar mitzvah or your confirmation to read the scriptures directly. Now you're stuck with some guy who tells you what it says. And you can't read. And you're at the mercy of a centralized and corrupt clergy. And that's why we went into the Dark Ages. And if it hadn't been for some of the Irish monasteries who saved the books, the Renaissance, the Reformation, all that stuff wouldn't have happened. So this blurring of the worldviews created an interpretation of the scriptures and a direction that's not healthy that would be mitigated at some point by the Reformation, which I'm going to talk about next time. We're done with this one. Let's pray. 